Cool. Cool. Oh, uh, I should turn off my AC. Alexa, turn off Hummingbird. Why is it called Hummingbird? Why is it called Hummingbird? Because it's one of those window units that uh, outside there, there's this plant that all the hummingbirds really like. And so we named it Hummingbird because the air conditioning unit hums and it makes you cold. Burr. Ah, that's cute. Yeah. That's a really good one. We, yeah, we, we like good names. Are we going to talk about uh, personal home assistance today? I don't think so, unless you really want to. I mean, do you have something better? Is this our intro right now? Or this could be our talking? intro. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can talk about personal home assistance. I was going to talk about the president, but, you know. The POTUS. Let's talk about the POTUS. Is, is that acronym actually ever pronounced? I'm sorry. Uh, excuse me, Ben. I just got interrupted there momentarily. Uh, the convention is ongoing as we are recording this. Uh-huh. As you're listening to it, it'll be a week or, or maybe more in the future. Um, there's so, a lot going on right now. And yeah, there's a lot. it's a very fraught time. And we should talk about... And so here's the thing about elections. Is elections are when there's lots of... Uh, lots of data, lots of numbers that get thrown around. So everybody turns into a statistician, a, like a bad statistician for four months. Mm. Um, and occasionally good statisticians write very, do very interesting work around elections. And uh, yeah, it's definitely worth thinking about. Uh, you are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, let's talk about that instead of my Amazon Echo. Alexa, Simon says you are listening to Linear Digressions. You are listening to a linear digressions. Oh, <laughs> hi, Alexa. If I were to say something to her right now and you had me on speaker instead of on headphones, would she respond uh, to my voice or is it just yours? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she knows me. No, she doesn't know me. She responds to anybody, uh, anything, usually human voices. Sometimes she responds to other things. Cool. Yeah, so uh, so elections, so bad statisticians, uh, speaking of me, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not, when I say that, I don't actually mean uh, most of the people that you hear about on podcasts or in the newspaper or whatever, because most of the people who do this professionally, they're, uh, they're pretty good at what they do. It's just that, right. you know, everybody turns into an armchair politician at election time. Right. Yeah, I, I try to be careful to not talk confidently about things I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, not everyone does that. Uh, true that. But but there are some things that we do know about election polling or, you know, known unknowns, things that uh, that we've mm. learned about how to make these things better or worse and how to interpret them and things like that. And that's worth thinking about so that then when you see some of these things that, um, that come out, you have a little bit more context for understanding what they mean and what they don't mean. Um, so... And also, yeah. for context, you do this as a job. Well, I personally um, am in the research and development department at Civis, um, mm-hmm. and so there's sort of like a different place where more of the political work happens. But th- yeah, so the place where I work, Civis Analytics, um, sort of got its start as um, the analytics team for the Obama campaign in 2012. So they did all of this predictive modeling and election forecasting and things like that. Um, and it turns out that a lot of the things that you have to do to um, to do that very well are generalizable to beyond things like 
just running elections. You can run mm-hmm. advertising campaigns or uh, outreach yeah. or um, other things. So, so they kind of kept the band together and moved back to Chicago and started a company. And now here we are. Um, about three years later, and it's kind of an it, it's an interesting thing to think about. There's a really good Wired article that talks. It mostly talks about Civis, but um, you know, court, kind of puts it into a, a broader contract or into a broader context. Excuse me. Um, this is a Wired article that says the polls are all wrong. A startup called Civis is our best hope to fix them. So, not to be too grandiose or anything. <laughs> um, it's quite a title. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no pressure. Um, so I, I don't know that that might be overstating it a little bit, but the thing to keep in mind is that, well, there are several things to keep in mind. One is that modern data centric campaigns are a new thing. Um, we just didn't have the capacity to be gathering data in, you know, the sixties or seventies or eighties or even nineties as we do today. At the same time, things have gotten a lot harder, uh, very recently in terms of collecting good, reliable data. And we should come back to this because this this strikes at the heart of how polling is done. And if you do your polling wrong, then you can very easily reach the wrong conclusions. So it's been kind of interesting to watch how there's, there's so much more data that we have available. But on the other hand, some of the data can be so much more difficult to collect reliably and in an unbiased way that, um, I don't know, it's, it's certainly not something where you feel like you can get very complacent. Um, but that having been said, uh, yeah, so in the last few elections, there's been more and more predictive analytics that have been deployed by the different campaigns to try to understand, you know, who their voters are and what kinds of um, outreach they would be responsive to and to generally, you know, study elections and see if how you can do it as effectively as possible. And so what would happen is you'd get all these people together and they're, uh, you know, they're really smart and they're really dedicated and they work really hard to put together Um, projects to run on these campaigns and then the campaign is over and it just oops sorry I just hit my microphone but it just um, kind of dissolves into into the air and everybody goes back to their day jobs and the goal with Civis was to make something that is a little bit more long term where you're not assembling it from scratch you know eight months before you need to be using it to win a presidential election that you have kind of like a longer time to build this up and to um, to get it ready for prime time before you have to actually roll it out. So just for a little bit of context, that's kind of what we do. And a lot of that, a lot of that political work is still kind of like in our DNA in a sense. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, it's, it's definitely interesting. Elections are definitely interesting because four years is just enough time for everyone to kind of forget (laughs) everything. Uh huh. And then have to start kind of, I mean, not entirely from square one, but kind of from square one. I mean, like, so Civis got its start, you know, three and some odd days years ago. And like here, like this is the next election cycle right now. So like, it seems like as things are moving so quickly in the in the world of uh, data science, machine learning, uh, to a lesser degree, statistical analysis, four years is a really, really long time. So can you take a lot of the learnings from four years ago and apply them to this year's election and and on and on? Right. So the answer to that question is yes and no. And this, I think, really gets at the heart of how to interpret you know, what all this work is about. So the first thing that I want to point out is, let's think about it. There's a lot of different ways that you can 
unpack an election as kind of like a big data involved exercise. So I mean, by that, I mean that you can think of elections, we could talk about how to predict who is projected to win, we could talk about how the individual polls are constructed in like each of the states that are being polled right now, you can think about it as an exercise in, um, you know, the campaigns trying to figure out what's the most effective thing that they can be doing with their resources. Um, so let's step back for that for a second and we'll just take, we're just going to bite off the, the polling piece of it and do right. a deep dive into that. So, okay. Um, so, so why do we poll in the first place? Well, so it turns out that polling is one of the most reliable tools that we have to actually figure out what's going to happen. There's a lot so of, that means, mm-hmm. that means calling up people and saying like, Hey, who are you going to vote for or giving them surveys? Is that? Yeah. 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 And, and trying to place that, so that's, that's the first half of it, is getting people on the phone and, and recording what it is that they tell you when you ask them who they would intend to vote for. Uh, the second half of it is then turning that into a projection for what that means about public opinion as a whole. Um, so let's take just the first part of that, the polling, uh, you know, getting somebody getting on the phone. Getting people on the phone, yeah. Um, so the way that this polling actually works is there's kind of, two ways that you can do it. You can call landlines or you can call cell phones. And the thing about landlines is that's what we've always done in the past, but fewer and but fewer people. But who has landlines? Yeah, who has a landline anymore? Definitely certain demographics. Like it's the, the number of people who have landlines, those people definitely skew towards certain demographics, whereas cell phones skew maybe the other way. That's right. So if you have a landline, you know that you're going to have to do a little bit more work Um, Well, I wouldn't say a little bit more work because cell phones, you know, probably have their own biases in terms of who has a cell phone and who doesn't. Um, But the idea is that like landlines are are getting worse and worse. Let's think about it that way, that fewer and fewer um, people have landlines relative to cell phones. So you're Mm -hmm. getting this kind of weird skewed sample in the first place. Second thing is um, here's some stats for you. so in terms of people who actually like pick up their phone and then give you an answer to a question, it's actually something that uh, <laughs> is more challenging than you might expect. So in 1980, uh, the percentage of people who would respond to a poll, so response mean, means that like we got them on the phone and we recorded their answer, you know, they didn't hang up as soon as they realized who it was. Uh, 72% of people responded to polls, 72% of That's the people who were called. really high really high. Uh, year 2000, it was 61%. So in the 20 years between 1980 and 2000, it drops by 11 percentage points. That's still pretty good. 2000 to 2012. Um, actually, for funsies, why don't you guess what the what the response rate oh. was in 2012? Well, so since you're guessing. 60, it was at 72% in 1980, 61% in 2000. Okay. Um, so 20 years so gap. 20 years, 11%, 11 dip. Yeah. Now we're talking 12 additional years. Mm -hmm. So like if this were linear, you wouldn't be having me guess. (laughs) Yeah. But I would say like it dropped another 7% or something like that. But I'm going to guess 30% of people. (laughs) 5.5%. Oh, no. Yeah. That was in 2012. this, This just plummeted. And in 2016, it's less than 1%. No. So for oh every 100 people you try to get on the phone, you're going to get one good answer. So it's getting so really hard to call this people. This data, this data, yeah, okay, so it's more expensive, 
per answer you get and it's probably less reliable it's probably it's probably more skewed because not only are you skewing the population that you're sampling by whether they have a landline or not which is already a, a big a big skew but also there's probably some kind of a bias in like what is that one percent that's actually going to talk to you how do they differ from everyone else who won't right that's what what kind of uh thing might be going on when you talk to a um it's to either... a 21 year old you know <laughs> 21 year old uh person living in ohio who who is talking to you on a landline in the middle of the day on a wednesday or whatever when you get a hold of them yeah. like that's a that's a that's a strange person that you just got on the phone <laughs> <laughs> yes um and so so yeah no that's a really good point the other thing I should just add real quick before we move on from cell phones is we didn't talk about why they don't use cell phones. And it's not that they don't use cell phones. In fact, there are there are polling agencies that do. The thing about cell phones is they're just really expensive. They're much more expensive to call cell phones than it is to call landlines. And so if you have a fixed budget, you're going to be able to call many more, uh, oh, that's many more landlines than cell phones. So, so there are still people who make that calculation and they say like, okay, we're going to put part of our money into reaching out with cell phones. But it, yeah, it's just a trade-off that you have to make. You know, that's probably something I would have guessed maybe uh, five or ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, but now I don't really think of calling a cell phone versus a landline because it's all f- it's all built into the the cost of my cell phone plan. Oh, you mean in terms of, like, if you're an individual who's making right. a call to someone? Right. Right. But, but if you're, like... Are, yeah, the rules are very different mm-hmm. for you making, like, an individual personal call versus... Uh, a big call center that's potentially calling, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. Because there's special laws that require that are that apply to phone call, like solicitation type phone calls that you would make to cell phones relative to landlines. Yeah, uh, there's also the do not call list exactly. thing, yeah, which like you want to ensure that you are complying with it legally, but that means that the number, the types of the people that you can call is significantly lower especially as do not call lists become more opt out versus opt in. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so in general we have, you know, all of these means by which we can collect data, but like I said, the response rates are falling very steeply and the people who are left, it's more and more difficult to try to extrapolate from them to the population as a whole. So you're basically saying that, these two very fairly reliable data sources that we've always had are evaporating and getting less reliable as they evaporate. Yeah, I mean, it's so here's the second thing that that makes it really hard to know, you know, the best way to do this is that like the only real ground truth that we have is what the numbers are on election day. And that's always been true of all the of all the elections in the past, right? So you can run all the polls in the world, but the only way that you have to check that, like, the calculations you're actually doing are correct is you compare the projections that you have for election day for with who actually shows up on election day. And so what that means is, well, there are several things that that means. What that means is that the size of the data set that you have to work with, really, like the data set where you really actually know the right answer, is very limited. You get one data point every four years. And then the second thing is that then there's a lot of different, if you're trying to come up with some sort of causal explanation of what are the things that are important to understand if you're going to try to predict an election, 
for example, we didn't really have very good polling uh, for a long, long time. And so there were all these people in political science and they, and they still do this actually, as they try to understand like what are the fundamentals that drive who is going to win a given election. And as an example, they had this model uh, for, I don't even know, 50 years, maybe, maybe more than that. It was a very simple model that came out of political science. And it said, basically, you think of the party that's in control uh, in the election. So either an incumbent or a continuation of the same party that, that has an outgoing president. That party will lose if the, it was like the sum of the number of war deaths in the last four years and the unemployment rate. Like there's some function of those two numbers, war deaths, mm. unemployment. Um, you put those two numbers into this simple function and then if it gets past some threshold, then you say incumbent wins versus incumbent loses. And that seems like very reductionist, right? Like very, very, yeah. almost yeah. too simple. But it got, it predicted basically every election correctly for decades and decades if you just use that formula. And so at a certain point, you're like, well, I think it's probably more complex than that. And in fact, we can have all kinds of discussions about things like vice presidential choice and the the ins and outs of any particular candidates and the party's involvement and fundraising and turnout. And you can think of any one of a thousand different things that could have some play on how an election turns out. And so trying to come up with a model that this potentially like has a thousand inputs, but only, I don't know, 20 training points uh, is basically impossible right. to, to, right. to be reliably sure that you actually are, are getting the things that you think that you're getting out of it. Yeah. So, so I have a question. I mean, if you look at this one way, your data set is pretty small. You only have a certain number of elections where you have the, the outcomes and you have enough inputs to put into your model, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at it a different way and you look at it, say, by state, or if you even look at it by county, mm-hmm. now you have a lot more a lot more data points, a lot more inputs, and a lot more um, outputs. Ah, yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and okay, no. Okay, what's the, what's the no part of that? Yeah, so the no part of that is, so think about, like, when you see these national, these national polls, right, and it might say, like, whatever 45 45 plus minus three percent and then usually if it's if it's a good reporting source they'll tell you they'll tell you who ran the poll and different pollsters have different ways of um getting in touch with people like they have they might have different um ways that they handle this like cell phone versus landline things maybe people use um online polling everybody has their different recipe for how they uh, correct the sample that they got back to like the actual population and what that means. Um, okay, so the exact poll that you're looking at matters. Um, and then very often it'll also say, in addition to the source of the poll, how many people they actually called. And usually those numbers are actually not that big. They might be a few oh, thousand. Got it. So if, you're, if your county is like 100,000 people and you you pull like 400 people, your data, your, your data set is really, really small. Yeah. For that one County. Yeah. As soon as you start drilling down into like specific things, these, this is one of the reasons that, um, you should be skeptical, especially when people start making big extrapolations. Like, Oh, we just had this poll that came out. It surveyed a thousand people. And in it, we found that married white women who live in suburbs and have more than two children think this thing, 
you know, even though we think mm. of that as a very large demographic group in general, if what you start out with is a thousand people and then you start applying cuts to that data set until you get down to just people who are described by the things I just said, you might be talking about 30 people or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And so you have to be, um, you know, very skeptical. I think sometimes of drilling down into, you know, what we would call like the cross tabs too much, mm, um, okay. just from, just from the polls naively. Now that having been said, when you're in a regime kind of like this one, where you have a lot of a lot of data that's kind of spread out like this, and there might be particular types of correlations between between data points in a way that's meaningful. Uh, like you think that there's correlations in the way that women vote versus the way that men vote, then what you can do is you can actually use what's called like a hierarchical, um, usually like a hierarchical Bayesian model, which is something that I don't think we've talked about and deserves its own discussion. But those are actually specific types of models that can take into account some of the correlations in your data, and they can smooth over some of that that real like noisy jitter that you have in the individual subgroups and kind of like make it a little bit more well-behaved. So polling is tough. Everyone has their own special recipe for how, how they actually make predictions of who's ahead. And a very reasonable question you could ask at this point is like, well, what if we had a model that took all these polls as inputs and then kind of like stirred them mm. all together and made some beautiful yeah, electoral like a, souffle out of that? <laughs> uh, I mean, in science, they call that a meta study, right? Yes. Yeah. So where you take mm -hmm. all of the different studies that have been run, let's say, over 15 years about whether or not... Um, Gosh, I don't know. Uh, Smoking causes cancer. Yeah, no, I was going to say um, cranberry juice works for urinary tract infections. I don't think it does. But I read a meta-study about this, which took all of these studies and put them all together and kind of drew a conclusion from all of these individual studies, which each had their own data sets and all that stuff. Yeah, and then, and then like the fun thing to think about is just like each one of these like polls can sometimes be a hierarchical model that's designed to like smooth over some of the noise uh -huh. within the poll. Like the models that pull all the polls together are themselves usually hierarchical models. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's turtles all the way down. So there yeah. are a few sources that I think are really, really good for this. They don't always agree with each other, but trying to understand the differences where they don't agree um, can be really interesting and really fruitful. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I want because I'm not, by any means an expert on this. Yeah, so there are there are three that I can mm. um, definitely say are, are very well done. Um, so the first is done by 538. Um, this is Nate Silver and his team. Right, he's the election guy. Uh, yeah, he's, he's... At least the one everyone really likes talking about. Yeah, he's, he's uh, the one who uh, definitely gets the most publicity. And so he has this website called 538, it's so-called because that's the number of votes in the Electoral College. Um, and then I think in the last, I don't remember if it was 2012 or 2008, but he was like the guy who was doing this for the New York Times. And everybody got really excited as he was building all of these models and trying to explain all of the different likelihoods of various things happening. And, um, and so now he's sort of started up his own um, group that is continuing to do that work. And they have uh, a couple of really interesting models. Uh, one is called the Polls Only. And so he takes uh, a bunch of different polls. He weights them relative to 
how reliable they've been in the past and also does some corrections for known biases that they have. So certain polls will tend to skew one way or another sometimes. And so he tries to correct for that. Um, and then he puts that into a, a thing that just says, what's the, what's the prediction based only on the polls that I, um, that I've just put into it. And then there's also what he calls the polls plus model. And this has a little bit more contextual metadata that goes into it. So it's things like the state of the economy. It also takes into account um, the fact that like right now I said that we're going through the conventions and there's usually a bounce that um, candidates get after their conventions. They seem to do a little bit better for a little while after their convention. And then usually, usually things will kind of rebound to a little bit more of an equilibrium state. And so the polls plus model kind of knows about that, so to speak. And so, for example, last week, the we were kind of between the Republican convention, the Democratic convention. And uh, so the Republicans had just gotten kind of a, a bounce from their convention. Um, and the polls only model changed a lot, or, you know, relatively speaking, changed a lot to reflect that, uh, that convention boost, or that convention right. bump. But um, Polls Plus had sort of already priced it into their um, calculations, and so it didn't change as much. Uh, okay. Okay, so that's 538. Second is New York Times, The Upshot, and they have a bunch of different, they have really good visualizations on The Upshot, I think, and so they'll walk you through, especially a lot of the a lot of the state-by-state state stuff and what are the various paths that each of these candidates has to win, um, So, which is a little bit of a different problem. It's just kind of like thinking through all the combinatorics and the, and the almost like the optimization or something of how do you, how do you get to 238 given the, um, the numbers that we're seeing for all the different states and how many electoral votes that they have. Um, so they have all these cool ways that, you know, it's the path that, if Clinton wins this state, then Trump has to win like these two states if he's going to have any realistic chance of winning. And you can work through sort of like all of those scenarios, which is really fun. And then the third one, and this one I'm a little bit less familiar with, but I've been looking at it more recently and I think it's really good, is the Princeton Election Consortium. So this is election.princeton.edu. And there is just tons of different um, visualizations that they have and them kind of like musing in a little bit of like a blog-like kind of way about how to think about all the different things that are going on in the polls or in the models and breaking it out by state and all of these different things. Um, and so that's a really good place to just sort of check. They also have a pretty good running ticker of, uh, this is the Huff, Huff Pollster feed. So I guess Huffington Post also um, collects a bunch of this stuff that gets published to sort of the sidebar on the Princeton site. And you can keep get kind of like thumbnail sketches of all the polls that are that have come out in the last couple of days, which can be pretty interesting. So I will probably be spending a lot more time on there in the days to come. Um, but I just discovered this recently. I should actually add this was this was suggested to me by one of our listeners on Twitter. So I should give him credit. There were actually a couple of people who who had mentioned this as something they'd be interested in hearing about. So real quickly, Gustavo Damari and Max Million held, or maybe Max, um, we're both thinking this would be kind of a fun thing to talk about. So thanks, guys. Yeah, definitely. And um, we love the interaction on Twitter or really anywhere you can find us. And uh, we read all of our emails. Katie, mm. does pollster feel like a 90s term to you? Oh, uh, 
I don't know. It's just a little seems, bit maybe. It seems so '90s to add the oh the S T E R yeah like stir to the end of it. Friendster Napster. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I think I, I've taken away more from this episode than just that, but that definitely sticks in my mind. Yeah, Polster. I think I I predict that that one will be with us for a while until people stop answering their phones, which will happen in like the next year from if current trends continue. But anyway, yeah. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.